the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew. There will be smaller battles along the way where we are constantly having to reckon with our flesh, die to self, take up our cross daily, and follow Jesus. That is a decision, and thankfully we have His Spirit to empower us as, um, as we so desperately need His power over our uh, weak flesh at times. But this is what Jesus calls us to. This is If you want to be a disciple of Christ, we have to take up our cross. In other words, we have to die to self and we have to follow Him. All in all, Jesus has won the war. Once and for all, Jesus died on the cross for the sins of all humanity. He was the perfect and blameless sacrifice. His blood doesn't only cover our sins, but also takes them away from us. When Jesus covers our sin, He takes away the shame and guilt. We don't get to hold on to those feelings anymore. They belong to Him. Trials will come in life. The Bible says so. But it's how we respond to the struggles that matters. Whether we choose to lean on the Lord makes all the difference. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. The cross was that emblem, as the old hymn says, of suffering and shame. And they understood in their day that the cross was symbolic of death, a horrible death. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion, the Persians did, but the Romans perfected it. And for Jesus to be using this terminology would have awakened them and quickened them. They would have realized, what is he talking about? He's talking about a a crucifying of self, a death to self, a dying to our flesh, that there might be less of us and more of God's Spirit so we can live for His glory and not for our own glory, that we can live for the glory of God and not for self-satisfaction or selfish ambition, but but dying to self and crucifying the flesh and recognizing those sinful things in our lives and confessing it as sin and then starving those things that have an appetite and, and recognizing that as people of flesh, you can know Christ as your Savior but still have to deal with this other nature that we still have until the day we die and then we're separated from this body of flesh that is constantly going to be warring with your soul. And Paul talks about how the things I want to do, I don't do in Romans chapter 7. And the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. He says, oh, what a wretched man I am. But thanks be to God who gives me the victory through Jesus Christ. And that victory comes by daily battles. 
You know, in a bigger sense, Jesus has won the war, but there will be, there will be smaller battles along the way where we are constantly having to reckon with our flesh, die to self, take up our cross daily, and follow Jesus. That is a decision. And thankfully, we have his spirit to empower us as, um, as we so desperately need his power over our uh, weak flesh at times. But this is what Jesus calls us to. This is, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, we have to take up our cross. In other words, we have to die to self and we have to follow him. And, and Jesus in verse 25, he says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Now, I find it interesting in the Bible, and there are many, and I'm only going to highlight five for the sake of time, but there are many great paradoxes in the Bible. And this is one of them, taken right here from Matthew 16, 25. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for me will find it. In other words, that you're going to find life through losing it. It's a great paradox. And paradox is actually from Greek words paradoxa. Para means uh, besides, and doxa mean, means thought or opinion. A paradox is something besides the conventional opinion of the day. It, it, it seems, it sounds to our ears contrary. It is, it is, it is uh, counter, counterintuitive to think about gaining life by dying. So there are many paradoxes in the Bible, and this is one of them. I'm just going to highlight five. But, but as, we, as we read this, you know, consider what Jesus is trying to say here. Matthew 16, 25, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. The more you want of yourself the less room there is for Jesus to really be Lord. But if you really want to have life and fullness of life, then there has to be a greater surrender, a death to self, that you might really enjoy the life that he intends for you to have. So many people go around using this expression when they're kind of at their wit's end. You've used it. I've heard it. We've all used it or heard it. It's this whole thing, I'm going to lose it. I feel like I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose it. Yeah, and when you finally do, then you'll get it. When we finally lose it and we get to the end of ourselves, then we'll really be able to experience the life that Jesus intends. We have to die to self. We're going to find life through death. That's one paradox. Let me just highlight a couple other with you. Here's another one. Exaltation comes through humility. Exaltation comes through humility. This is what Luke 14, 11 says. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's what Jesus said. If you promote self, God will humble you. If you humble yourself, God will promote you. It's a great paradox, but, it, but it's true. And again, this is counterintuitive to the way that the world teaches. The world teaches you want to get ahead, you promote self. You make self the center, and, and you exalt self. And that works to some degree, I suppose, in the corporate world. You know, however somebody advertises himself, promotes themselves, and, you know, makes himself known. And, and then maybe they'll climb the corporate ladder perhaps a little more easily because, you know, they put their, themselves out there. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, if you own a business, advertising your business. You know, let's not take things to extreme. But what Jesus is saying is, goes to the heart. And the heart is that the more we want to exalt self and we have pride about self and we promote self, then God will humble us. But when we take on a position of humility and when we, when we uh, deal with pride in our own hearts and, and when we you know, humble ourselves before God, then he will exalt and he will promote and he will use and he will open doors. And so it's a great paradox, but it is truth. And Jesus said this. Number three, here's another paradox. 
There's strength through weakness. In 2 Corinthians 12.10, Paul says, That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You hear that paradox? He's like, you know, when, when I am weak, when I realize my own limitations, when I get to the place where I've been stripped of self, hardships, I'm in difficulties and trials, when I am weak, then that's when I understand and experience the Lord's strength, His strength in me and through me. So there's strength through weakness. Number four, receiving through giving is what the Bible teaches as well. It's another great paradox, but Jesus said in Luke 6.38, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, what does the world teach? The world teaches hold on to it, get as much as you can, accumulate it, and then, and then hold it tight. Tight-fisted. That's the way the Bible, or rather the world teaches, but the Bible teaches the great paradox, which is be open-handed, be generous, be giving, and then you will receive more than you could possibly give. You cannot outgive God. So the more generous you are, and the more you give, and the more you serve, the more God will repay and reward in ways that sometimes are like, kind, or not even tangible ways. But God does this wonderful thing of blessing us, and, and He blesses us in abundance. You can't outgive God, but if you're tight-fisted, if you're just closed off, if you're stingy, if you're not generous, you're going to always be trying to make ends meet. It's amazing, though, and some of you have learned this as you've grown in your life with Christ, that the more generous you are, though you look at your checkbook and you go, I'm not sure I'm going to make ends meet, and yet you still operate in this spirit of generosity, and you're going to honor God, and you're going to love God, and you're going to be generous to people, and generous with tithes and offerings, and however God would lay it on your heart to bless people, and missionaries, and ministries around the world, and and just serving people, loving people in a generous way, and how... Wonderful God will take care of you in ways that are just amazing. And and why is that? Because of this great paradox. But it's truth. God says, if you're generous, you will receive. And uh, so there's receiving through giving. And then finally, just to highlight one more, but there's many more through the Bibles. It it makes for a great Bible study. Uh, But there's greatness through leastness. Greatness comes through leastness. Uh, Jesus would say in Luke 9, 48, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for he who is least among you, he is the greatest. That sounds, again, so counterintuitive. People want to be great, want want everybody to know how great they are. And Jesus says, no, if, if you really want... Uh, greatness, then you should really just focus on being the least that you can and then let God do what He wants to do. And uh, He says, who is least among you is really the one esteemed by heaven as being greatest. It's not positions and titles and notoriety and fame. That's, that's not what we should strive for. Though if God opens that door for you and gives you that kind of a platform, then use it for His glory. But it's the idea of God is most glorified when we are just least and humble and servant and just generous and loving and, and all these things that, that uh, the Bible teaches 
Uh, and then as a result, uh, God does his wonderful work in response. But um, this is one of these cases back here now, Matthew 16, let's pick up where we left off, where it seems so, um, so different for us to, to think about this, but it is, it is deep spiritual truth. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, whatever loses his life for me will find it. And at the end of this 16th chapter, there in verse 28, he says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, this is not a reference to his second coming because he's speaking here to his disciples. They're not going to outlive uh, that. But what he is referring to when you consider how chapter 16 flows right into chapter 17, the chapter divisions were added about the 15th century, okay? So sometimes you have to read your Bible and not, not think that the, the content or the thought separates because it's a new chapter. It's continuing into what is referred to now as the transfiguration. And this is really what Jesus is referring to. He said, there's going to be some of you who are going to see me in a glorified state. He's going to take Peter, James, and John, three out of his 12 apostles up to a high mountain where he will be transfigured before them. Let's read it, chapter 17, verse 1. It says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Okay, so now Jesus has 12 apostles, but he's only going to take three, Peter, James, and John. And it's, it's not that uh, like John, Jesus was showing favoritism for the sake of favoritism, but he had somewhat of an inner circle. He had Peter, James, and John that he had a closer relationship with and that he would reveal himself to on a deeper level at different occasions. You can read through the Gospels. There are different times he would take just those few with him. When he get to the Garden of Gethsemane, um, he, he would also... Uh, take some of them a little bit further with him. So, you know, he, he at times is going to minister at kind of a deeper level, more discipleship with Peter, James, and John. He takes them up on a high mountain. Which mountain is this? The Bible doesn't say specifically, but given that they are right here at the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is at the foot of Mount Hermon, that's probably the mountain that he takes them up to. Uh, Mount Hermon stands a, a little over 9,000 feet uh, in altitude. Uh, some people will say, you read some Bible commentaries, they say, no, 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 it was Mount Tabor, which is down in the Jezreel Valley. It is six days later. That would be a, a steep and a quick hike to get to Mount Tabor within six days because it's more than, it's about 60 to 70 miles away. He could do it, but, um, but that probably is not the location. Plus, Mount Tabor is not a high mountain. It says he took him up on a high mountain. Mount Tabor is about 1,886 feet in altitude. Mount Hermon is over 9,000 feet. So that's probably the location here. And by the way, there's year-round skiing in Israel on the top of Mount Hermon. It's, it stays with a snow cap, and it's, and it's beautiful. And um, so not that he necessarily took him all the way up to the summit, but he takes them up on a high mountain by themselves. And, uh, and he's transfigured before Peter, James, and John. Now, that word transfigured in the Greek is metamorphu. Metamorphu, we understand in English and in science, metamorphosis. Uh, a, a metamorphu is meta, to change, and morphu means form. So he, he changes form here. Now, the other Gospels, when they record this, I think it is Luke 
who talks about this transformation, this metamorphosis of being radiant like lightning. There's, there's, he's glowing. Jesus has this glowing, radiant, brilliant appearance. This is, his, this is the glory of God that is just manifest over and around and through Jesus. So can you imagine Peter, James, and John, as they're seeing this, they are wide-eyed. They're like, wow, I mean, this is, he's bright. Maybe they're kind of shielding their eyes. And, uh, and here Jesus is transfigured before them. Now, he is giving them a glimpse of the coming kingdom. This whole transfiguration is intended to encourage the disciples But also, it's a moment where Jesus is going to be strengthened because he gets visited here by Moses and Elijah. And Matthew says that Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus. Now, Moses and Elijah, prophets of old, they've already gone on to be with the Lord. So they come to be with Jesus here in themselves, some kind of a heavenly body. And it says that they talk with Jesus. Now, Luke specifically records in Luke 9, 31, that he says they spoke to Jesus about his departure. King James Version says they spoke to Jesus about his decease. The Greek of of that word in the New Testament uh, is the word exodus. And so they speak, Moses and I just speak to Jesus about his exodus, his departure, his decease. They are comforting him and ministering to him about his impending death, his crucifixion. And they're coming there to strengthen him and minister to him. Now, interestingly, Moses represents the law. We talked about this on Sunday and on Saturday night, the past weekend. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. You have a representation of the law and the prophets. That is the sum total of Old Testament Scripture. You could also say the Psalms, but basically whenever even today a Jew refers to the Tanakh, to the whole Old Testament, it is referred to as the law and the prophets. Here come Moses and Elijah representing law and prophets, and their presence is signifying that Jesus, Messiah, is fulfilled and spoken of in the sum total of Scripture by the law and the prophets. They're bearing witness to his identity. They're also speaking to him about his impending death. And Peter then, in verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now again, you know, Peter, he's going to speak up. He's the bold one. He's the talk first, think later guy. And uh, sometimes he says brilliant things, and sometimes he says not so brilliant things. This is one of those kind of borderline not so brilliant things. In fact, uh, Wearsby, in writing his commentary, says that when God speaks, God rebukes. There's a rebuke here because um, it says in verse 5 that while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so it's a, it, it's, while he was still speaking, okay, God interrupts him. That's what the text says. So Peter's like, you know what, Jesus, we ought to build one shelter for you, one shelter for Moses, one, this is my beloved son in whom I am well, stop your yapping, all right? You know, listen to him. Now, the reason why guys like Wearsby believe, and I think it's true that Peter is getting this mild rebuke from heaven here, is because in a sense what Peter is doing is he's putting Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. 
He's saying, we need to build three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He's putting Jesus on the same plane with Moses and Elijah. And God comes along and speaks from heaven, and he says, no, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He's distinct and different and superior than and to Moses and Elijah. He's the son of God. Now, uh, Mark, when he writes his gospel, he, he inserts parenthetically right here. Mark puts, Peter said this, but he didn't know why he said it. That's what, Mark, that's what Mark says about Peter. He says, Peter said this and he had no idea what he was saying. He just, you know, came up with this idea at the moment, like, you know what? We ought to build some shelters. Let's just build some shelters. Mark goes, ah, he didn't know what he was saying. Uh, and so it's just kind of the guy that Peter was. But, you know, I understand in a feeling sense, why is Peter wanting to do this? He's wanting to preserve this glorious moment. I mean, this is, he, yeah, he is. He's just wanting to, there's no chance to get out his phone and take a picture here, okay? There's no way to preserve this. He's just like, let's build a shelter. Let's just stay here and camp out. Now, remember, there's nine other guys at the bottom of the mountain. Nine other apostles are left back in the mountain. Peter doesn't care a bit. I mean, I wouldn't care either. If I'm seeing Jesus glowing here like a nuclear radiating thing in front of me, and then there's Moses and Elijah, I'm like, let's build some huts. Let's camp out. I'm liking this. Who's brought some s'mores? Let's do this. By the way, how is it that Peter, living hundreds of years, in fact, in relation to Moses, 1,450 years after Moses, in relation to the period of the kings, about a thousand years after Elijah, and Peter recognizes them. He's never met them. How is it that he recognized Moses and Elijah, that he even knew that this is Moses and this is Elijah? We ought to build huts for them. This is a text that reminds us of this reality, which is important for us to note. Have you ever wondered when you get to heaven if you're going to really recognize your loved ones? People who have gone on before you who know Christ as Savior, and they're in heaven now. I mean, is everybody going to go around going, you know, who are you? Do you have name tags? Are they passing out name tags in heaven? Because I don't know who you are. But instead, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. So there's not going to be any confusion in heaven. We're going to know each other, and we are going to be fully known. But there's something here about the glorified bodies and some kind of a, the representation of Moses and Elijah before Peter that he already understood their identity. And this is comforting because I get this question a lot of times from people, you know, when I, well, I know my loved ones, well, I know my kids, well, I know my parents, well, I know my husband and my wife, and well, I know my great-grandparents, and well, I know my friends, and yeah, you'll know them. They will be recognizable. And you may not have ever even met them. You know, I expect to meet some great-great-grandparents of mine that I hope are in heaven that I've never met. But there will be this instant understanding. And even while Peter is here on earth, there seems to be imparted to him an ability to recognize Moses and Elijah for who they really were, even though he had never met them. So some interesting stuff that's going on here. Now, it says in verse 6, that when the disciples heard this, the voice of God from heaven, this is my son whom I love, With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, Peter, James, and John, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen 
until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Again, it's just putting this, there's a proper timing. You don't need to talk about this. Let's just keep it between friends. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. This unique perspective on Jesus' life gives you a glimpse into the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the true King above all kings. Jesus' greatest act while on earth was to give His life to pay for the sins of every person, and that includes you. If you're ready to step away from your mistakes and failures and embrace a new life, Jesus is ready for you. His grace is enough. You can come to Him no matter what your past looks like. Would you like someone to pray with you? Or do you have some more questions? We'd love to talk to you. Please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. You're invited to join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online. And you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. There, you can also hear additional messages from the series in Matthew or others that Pastor Gary has shared. Again, that website is cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know